Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu and welcome to the Muslim Matters Podcast. When we talk about taqwa, we often discuss things like trusting in Allah, avoiding sin, being mindful of our obligations so that we don't fall into sin. We think about prayer, fasting, and paying zakat. We think a lot about staying away from sex on TV, in music, and on our computer screens. But what if taqwa means thinking more about sex, but with our spouses instead? Today, we're honored to be speaking with Ustad Mukhtar Ba, who is an advanced student of Maliki Fiqh, Arabic grammar, Sira Nabawiya, Hadith, Aqidah, and Tasawwuf. He also extensively reads and researches the Tafsir Tagran. Ustad, Jazakallah Khair, thank you so much for joining us. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi Thank you for having me. My pleasure. You know, to jump right in, you wrote a very insightful and to some very surprising piece for Muslim Matters titled A Primer on Intimacy and Fulfillment of a Wife's Desires Based on the Writings of the Scholars of the Past. One of the things that I think surprised a lot of readers was how frank and how directly classical Islamic scholars addressed the issue of female orgasm and how a righteous Muslim husband is religiously obligated to satisfy his wife. What do these classical scholars base this on? Uh, so one interesting thing about the piece is that um, before it was published, it actually had been in the works for about five years. Um, so I did have access to the information. And again, well, for the piece, I don't have much merit other than translating and consolidating the information that I found in uh, various uh, scholarly resources. To answer your question, what they based it on was the Quran and the Sunnah. So the textual evidences are those of the revelation, the Quran being the major revelation, and the Hadith, as uh, some of our listeners may know, being the minor revelation. So what has the Prophet said that we can draw this conclusion from? Like, where does this idea come from? Or what is, what is this based in that, you know, we have obligations to each other in marriage that involve the satisfaction of the other spouse? Uh, the Quran is our primary source before even embarking on what the Prophet ﷺ has said. And of course, with the understanding that whatever the Prophet ﷺ says will be congruent with what has been revealed in Quran. In the Quran, Surah number 30, verse 21, Allah Ta'ala says that it is among his signs that he has created for you wives from among yourselves so that you may find tranquility in them and he has created love and kindness between you. Um, and of course, for any verses of the Quran, sometimes the meanings may not be obvious and what we refer to is the tafsir of the Quran which is explanation of those meanings. And generally, if the Prophet ﷺ has not explained the verse, uh, then the immediate source for the explanation of that verse after will be the Sahaba, the companions. Abdullah ibn Abbas, عنه, who was the cousin of the Prophet ﷺ and who was known to be uh, proficient in explaining the meanings of the Qur'an. So Abdullah ibn Abbas says that in this verse, when Allah says, and he has created love and kindness and mercy, he says that love, in fact, means intercourse, being intimate with your spouse. And this is an understanding that is, is backed up by other hadith and no one disagreed with this? 
Uh, no, no one disagreed. Uh, as is common in the tafsir of the Quran, there'll be different interpretations. Al Hassan al Basri, uh, who was among the Tabi'in, and Mujahid, who was another scholar among the Tabi'in, if I'm not mistaken, who were also both known to specialize in tafsir, they, they have ascribed the same meaning to love as Abdullah ibn Abbas has. And then the classical scholars, what do they extrapolate from that? So the extrapolation of the ulama is actually derived directly from the hadith of the Prophet And what has the Prophet said on this topic? So there are, there are a few hadith uh, which uh, we did include in the article. Um, the first one is, إِذَا جَامَ أَحَدُكُمْ أَحْلَهُ فَلْيُصَدِّقْهَا فَإِنْ سَبَقَهَا فَلَا يُعَجِّلْهَا When one of you has intercourse with his spouse, then let him be truthful towards her. If he happens to precede her, then he should not rush her. In the article for the explanation of this hadith, we refer to a classical scholar called Al-Manawi, who was an Egyptian Shafi'i scholar, uh, who commented on a book of uh, Jalaluddin al-Suyuti, who is also a classical scholar of the Ahl-Sunnah. And he explains what the hadith means is that the man should be truthful in his love and his display of goodwill towards her. This means that it is commendable for him to make love to her with strength, resolve, and make fine love to her. When I read this piece the first time, I was very surprised because I was aware, obviously, spouses treating each other equitably in their intimacy is a part of the religion. But the the language and the frankness of the discussion from the earlier scholars kind of surprised me, even to the extent where they were describing different methods of foreplay and they were describing how to recognize, you know, perhaps when one's wife is ready for intercourse so that a man is not just kind of you know, jumping in and not necessarily fulfilling his obligations towards her. And one of the things, again, that really surprised me was how different this seems from the modern discussions about, you know, sex in our community now. I think that the discussion now focuses almost entirely on all of the don'ts, which is understandable because we're surrounded by zina all the time. Like, don't look at pornography, you know, don't watch inappropriate things on TV. Don't listen to inappropriate things, you know, in your music. But what are some of the do's and why do you think we have this difference in in the subject and how we discuss it now? So it's that's an extremely interesting question, extremely pertinent. I discussed this with a friend of mine who's a scholar who lives in California. And the reason why I mentioned this, so he's born and raised in California. The reason why I mention this is uh, one of the questions that uh, arises as well is, does culture have something to do with this? So where does the cultural difference come in? I mean, if everybody's cultures, scholars are supposed to be looking for the same thing in this, then where does the difference of interpretation come in when it comes to conversation about this? Like my background is that I'm, I'm half Pakistani and half white American. And the way that these two cultures and these two you know, Islamic communities discuss intimacy in Islam is vastly, vastly different, to say the least. Right. And I think that's where some people are struggling a bit. I am from West Africa, a country called Mauritania. I'm, I'm also mixed from, from Mauritania and Senegal. Matters having to do with intimacy in our societies are discussed with a lot of bashfulness, but it does not mean that they're not discussed. The Prophet, وسلم, who is the example, the pinnacle of bashfulness, discuss matters of intimacy with the Sahaba through his sayings in the Hadith. 
And when we look in those ahadith, what the classical scholars have found actually is that he did not shy away from mentioning what needed to be mentioned. As in this hadith that we just read, if he happens to precede her, what he means is that if he happens to precede her in his climax. So he did not use the word climax in the hadith, but it is very obvious that that's what is, that is what he meant. So he did not shy away from discussing it. And what this points out to us is how important and how necessary this is, how primordial it is to a relationship. So I think what, what happens in certain cultures, this bashfulness has been kept, but what has been lost is the message that is behind this ahadith. And this is not criticism you know, to some of the scholars. It's just that sometimes it is difficult to convey certain things in a direct manner. However, a scholar should have the ability to uh, use allusions, um, indirect speech, and to give some indication to people in a way that they, that they should understand it, because understanding it is absolutely necessary. Uh, myself and uh, Sister Saba Sayyid, uh, we did a video series, uh, Saba produced it, mashallah, on loving Muslim marriage, where we talked about a lot of the questions and misconceptions from the Muslim world and from the Muslim community about intimacy in a marriage. And one of the biggest one that came up was that marital intimacy was basically like a, a contractual exchange where uh, intimacy was the price women paid for stability and marriage was the price that men paid for intimacy. That's, that's a difficult one. Um, it is presented as such in some of the classical Islamic literature. Um, it is not meant to objectify women or to make the relationship a transactional one. Uh, when things of this sort as mentioned, what the ulama and the, the fuqaha mean is essentially they want to set the stage for when there is a dispute in the relationship and the dispute has to actually go to court. So this would only be relevant if it went to court and it was like a discussion of withholding intimacy in a relationship, whether someone's rights had been fulfilled in this case? Absolutely, because there is there are some rules in fiqh about how often a man is entitled to intimacy from his wife and how often a woman is entitled to intimacy towards her husband, from her husband. Re regardless of, of the gender that you are, when you're in a relationship, you're in a married relationship, that taking care of your spouse is a matter of obeying Allah. Is that accurate to say? Absolutely, absolutely. The intent of, uh, well, it's difficult to speak about it without speaking about zina. Okay. M marriage is, uh, is the alternative to zina. And that's when we speak about the physical component, but also the emotional component. As Abdullah ibn Abbas mentioned, love means intercourse. So the physical component directly feeds into the emotional component. Intercourse needs to happen in a couple for love to exist for love to develop, for love to be nurtured, to be maintained, and to evolve in the course of the relationship. Of course, there are other things that come into play. Intercourse is not the only thing, but the purpose of this discussion is exactly what happens, you know, the necessity for a man to, to make love to his wife, for a Muslim man to make love to his wife in a way that she is physically satisfied. There are other peripheral, you know, peripheral things that come into play in the relationship, that, that are known, you know, the kindness, the respect, 
the consideration, the affection, but it's a whole package. Uh, proper intercourse, proper physical intimacy from the man towards the woman and vice versa, by the way, is an absolute necessity for that relationship to be healthy and to grow and to be maintained. You know, you, you cited um, three testimonials in your piece that were very interesting. Um, and I want to read one now uh, from it. It's the first testimonial from the article It's uh, in which a, a sister is writing uh, anonymously, being married for 10 plus years, alhamdulillah, with three kids is a journey of pain and frustration in terms of sexual life. I never knew till some four years of marriage that there is something called an orgasm for females. I simply cannot explain the emptiness it leaves when he just calmly sleeps, leaving me aroused once he is done. He feels hurt when I say I too want to be satisfied, but my request to all the brothers out there is don't be selfish no matter how tired you are. If you want to be satisfied every single time of making love, make sure you, so does your wife. Your wife will never be emotionally attached to you if you do not satisfy her with your own love and willingness in bed, end quote. When you talk about, you know, the presence of intercourse in a marriage, people assume that that means that intercourse is happening, but that doesn't necessarily imply the mutual satisfaction of the spouses. It's not necessarily a loving exchange if one spouse is satisfying their needs while ignoring those of the other. Well, I would, I would argue that, it's, that it is absolutely not a loving exchange if that's what happens. And the sister's testimonial is uh, one, one of the greatest proofs uh, of that matter. Sisters are often told, don't complain, isn't he a good father? Don't complain, aren't your financial needs taken care of? Why are you complaining? He's not hitting you. He's not abusing you. You should be grateful. So, and, and that is disturbing and concerning that people would make comments like that. But at the same time, it is understanding if they haven't studied the sunnah as it relates to this matter. Um, so... And that testimonial that you just quoted, what the sister said, I'll repeat her last sentence, your wife will never be emotionally attached to you if you do not satisfy her with your own love and willingness in bed. She paraphrased what Abdullah ibn Abbas said. Intercourse is love. So um, those things that people quote, um, he's providing for you. He's not being abusive. He's a good father. Those are obligations that a man has towards his wife in marriage. And they're, the obligation to fulfill his wife's physical desires, if he's able to, are no less. It is a part and parcel of the marriage. They're not mutually exclusive. Right. So that's like saying, oh, no, my arm has been cut off. And someone's like, yeah, but you've got two legs. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but my arm is still missing. Which is why, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, the question comes, you know, in, in the books of fiqh, if a, man, if a man complains, you know, whether in an informal setting, directly speaking to his wife or speaking to her relatives or to a friend of hers or, or in a formal setting in court that I'm, I'm married to, to this woman and uh, she doesn't accept uh, that I share the bed with her often enough. So this is a subject that comes up in fiqh. And uh, the same for the woman as well. If a woman was to bring forward this complaint informally or formally in front of a judge. It's interesting that this would be an issue in court, that marital satisfaction is such a high priority that you could take your spouse to court for this. It, it's, it's very interesting. And I think it's a message from the fuqaha to, uh, the, to, you know, to, to the masses. 
um, that this is a matter of importance, just like the other things. Just like if a husband was not full, was not uh, providing for his family, and he was to be taken to court, you know, you only take important matters to court or matters of obligation. So what happens? I mean, once upon a time, satisfying your spouse, you know, in a marriage was important enough to take someone to court, and now we don't really have this conversation. Why do you think it's lost as priority? Okay, it's a it's a sensitive question. It's a let me see how do I uh, how do I reply that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's well, it is it's the ulama. This is the this is the responsibility of people who are learned. So mm. this is a call to the ulama in our communities, wherever they may be. That mm-hmm. when this is an issue, the ulama have to be honest in discharging the knowledge which is uh, trust that Allah Taala has put into their hands, and they have to be able mm-hmm. to discuss this very openly. I, if we could. Read actually one of the other two hadith that are mentioned in the article. إذا جامع أحدكم أهله فليصدقها ثم إذا قضى حاجته قبل أن تقضي حاجتها فلا يعجلها حتى تقضي حاجتها. When one of you has intercourse with his spouse, then let him be truthful towards her, which is the same wording as the previous hadith. But then, but then the Prophet ﷺ is even more direct in this hadith. He says. Then if he fulfills his need before her need is fulfilled, let him not rush her until it is fulfilled. As a matter of fact, he says, Let him not rush her until she fulfills her need. What is there a, a, a difference that results in the wordings? Yes, so the Prophet was more direct in this hadith. Okay. In the previous hadith, in Fain Sabaqaha. If he precedes her, then let him not mm-hmm. rush her. So we could almost mm-hmm. think of it as, it's not really a metaphor, but it, it's in indirect speech, right? So mm-hmm. you would have to infer from it. Um, but in this uh, in this hadith, he mentions, If he fulfills his need before she fulfills her need. So the commentator, Al-Manawi, he says, when he has fulfilled his need from her by reaching climax, mm-hmm. then he should not impel her to separate from him. Rather, he should carry on with her until her need from him is likewise fulfilled. And then he says, this will only occur by her reaching climax, orgasm, and her lust mm-hmm. settling. So... Manawi is a known, very you know, classical scholar. He's one of the greatest scholars that uh, actually the Muslims have had in Hadith, and he's recognized as such in the community of the scholars. So, to your point before, he was uh, they were very open, and they spoke about these things in a very open fashion. The, the problem is these things are in books, so it is the responsibility of the ulama who actually study these books and have access to them and who can understand the contents of these books to go to their communities when the issue comes up and discuss it in the same open fashion that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned them and that those classical scholars also discussed them. So what would be a good way of framing this? If somebody is thinking like, how do I even begin to raise this conversation with my spouse? Like what would be a good way of of introducing this conversation for people who perhaps have never heard it from their imams, who don't have access to an ulema, uh, a scholar, who 
to them, this is like new and, and surprising information. Where's a good place to start? As you will know by just, just by life experience, you know, the, the people just have different personalities, uh, different demeanors. I mean, so, I mean, dynamics of relationships, right? Our Muslim sisters have to be comfortable with the fact that they have, that lust is a part and parcel of, of, of themselves. That sounds almost crazy for some people to admit. It seems like being a, a righteous Muslim woman means being as far removed from sex as possible, even to the point where some people are taught about the existence of sex the day before their wedding. Which is, which is, a, which is a big problem. So um, it's, it, the next hadith says, خَيْرُ نِسَائِكُمْ الْعَفِيفَةُ الْغَلِمَةُ عَفِيفَةٌ فِي فَرْجِهَا غَلِمَةٌ عَلَى زَوْجِهَا The best of your woman is the one who is modest yet lustful. Al-ghalimatu. She's modest with regards to her private parts while she's lustful towards her husband. Um, this is, we'll, we'll go through the classical explanation. Um, I, if I'm not mistaken, Manawi, I have his, uh, just a second here. Yes, he passed away 400 years ago in the year 1031 after Hijri, 1621 in the Gregorian calendar. So he says, the modest woman refrains from the haram, which is, as we spoke, marriage is an alternative to zina. It is the only alternative to zina for the Muslim. It is the avenue that Allah has provided for many things, among which is the fulfillment of carnal desires. So the modest woman refrains from the haram. For her to be lustful, as is mentioned in the hadith, means that her carnal desire is restless. However, such restlessness is not praiseworthy in an absolute sense, as explained by the ensuing part of the hadith, meaning that she is modest towards strange men. I think the beginning of the conversation is our Muslim sisters need to feel comfortable with the fact that their carnal desires are restless. And that they are recognized. And this is not me speaking, this is Al-Manawi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, uh, and then, you know, the reason why we provide commentary, you know, and we, the reason why it's important when you, I mean, any kind of writing, not only religious writings is you have to, you know, provide proof for who is mentioning this, your sources and different sources have different levels of, uh, authenticity and, uh, what is the word of, uh, consideration in the Sharia? Yes. Of authenticity, really of, um, um, I can't find the word the word right validity. now. Validity. Um, validity, and Manawi is considered a reference among the ulama of the Ahlus Sunnah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's considered a reference, just like Imam Ghazali is considered a reference, and so forth. Mm-hmm. He's by no means some low caliber scholar. So these are his words. So our our Muslim sisters need to feel comfortable that their carnal desires are restless. There is nothing wrong with that. The problem is. If a person's carnal desires are restless and they seek to fulfill them through zina. But when a person is married, for their carnal desires to be restless is actually a good thing. And as you know, it varies among individuals. And medical research demonstrates that. And it's the fuqaha actually have mentioned this a long time ago, many centuries ago. So different women have different levels of carnal desires, and that is fine. And it is fine if your carnal desires are restless. There's, I'm not sure if there's any stronger word than restless. So I think the conversation, what needs to happen first is the understanding has to be, it has to be communicated, it has to be said honestly. 
there's nothing wrong with a woman having strong counter desires. It is perfectly fine. Or to be having any of them. Because again, being raised as a, a young Muslim woman almost means to be told to completely shut down any sort of, of sexual instinct or desire for the opposite gender at all. Just turn it off completely in in the attempt to, to cut off young women from zina and we do need to cut young people off from zina but of both genders but in the attempt to cut young women off from zina you know we tell them to cut everything off you know you must never like anyone you must never call anyone you must never express desire you know you must always be so shy that even the mention of of anything just makes you blush and pass out and then you get married and you're suddenly expect to activate a switch that has been atrophied for most of your life, if you've been pious enough. Which is, which is, and, and you mentioned a point that I think should be the subject of, of an entire podcast or several, because I, this is what actually drew my attention to the subject. Um, we did discuss it, a friend of mine. I did listen to that, those video series that we, you did with uh, Sister Saba, and they were excellent. And yeah, I, I listened to all of them. And this was uh, before my article was actually ready to be published about 80% by the time I listened to them. I just had it in the back burner. And one of the issues that I, I kept it for five years because I was hesitant, essentially, that, hey, you know, does this need to be out there? And what I had in the back of my mind was that, no, I'm, I mean, this must have been covered extensively enough, so there's no need to publish something else. But Maybe that's what the other ulema are thinking too. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> So this brings up an issue, which the need, the, the carnal desires that exist in men or women, in young men and young women before marriage, right? These are completely natural. And attempting to suppress them or asking them to ignore them is, uh, is just simply not reasonable. Not only is it not reasonable, but it is actually dangerous. And the danger lies in the fact that to protect a person from zina, what Allah has provided as an avenue is marriage. And when we look at the sunnah, we have to understand the sunnah for, you know, in the way that it was intended. The Prophet ﷺ has not asked young, young men and young women to suppress their desires. What he asked them was to attempt to get married. Not get your PhD first and then get married when you're 35 and miserable? Hey, it, if that's what you choose to do and you think you can do it, by any means. But what if that's being imposed on someone? What if that's you're in a situation where, you know, people are 38 and 40 years old and they want to get married and their parents, especially for the men, they're not being allowed to because they just don't have enough yet. So marriage uh, falls into different into the five categories of the ahkam of fiqh. Marriage can be wajib, it can be haram, it can be mustahab. Mustahab means commendable. It can be makruh, and it can be simply permissible. Jais. When is marriage haram or makruh? When the per when the individual does not have the means, the man does not have the means of uh, taking care of his family. Does that mean financially, or does that mean uh, in other senses? Financially. When is marriage makruh? Close to when it is uh, 
it's in a similar case to us to when it is haram. This might be a they're, they're very this might be a tangent, I'm but sorry? what if somebody what? is insane? They're not allowed to be married. So marriage would be haram in that case too. Yes, uh, I'm sorry. Let's come back to the macro. Macro is uh, when a man does not have any uh, physical uh, need, desire for intimacy. He does not desire women. And he's also involved uh, in activities which are beneficial for the Muslims and activities which would suffer as a result of him getting married. That is fascinating. I have never heard that before. So um, I think uh, Imam Nawawi is an example. Imam Nawawi never married? He never married. And I'm, I'm guessing this also applies for women. Like if a woman was engaged in something that was beneficial for the Ummah and she felt no such need to get married, would it be makruh for her to marry as well? Yes, because uh, it will take her away from that other, from those other activities wow. which are beneficial. My mind yeah. is blown right now. Like literally, <laughs> like my head just exploded because there are so many sisters that have dedicated their lives to, you know, different beneficial tasks and don't feel the need to have children and don't feel the need to be married. And they're financially sufficient, mashallah, for whatever reason. And yet they're told that, oh no, the greatest accomplishment for any Muslim woman is to be a wife and a mother. Like you must serve your husband and your children. And she's like, but I'm serving Allah. And they're like, no, no, no. You're missing out on the most amazing thing in the entire universe. <laughs> sorry, that's a tangent. My, I'm, I'm still picking up the pieces of my brain over here. I'm sorry. No, no, that, that, that's okay. And uh, so to come back on the other ones, uh, mustahab, right? Uh, so, and wajib. So when would it be wajib? If a person has a desire for intercourse, they have a desire for intimacy for the opposite sex, they can afford to get married. And, you know, afford to get married is also the subject of a whole podcast, I think. <laughs> sure. Yeah, definitely. Let's let's do that later, um, inshallah. Right. Because, so they can afford to be in a relationship. And I give an example about being, you know, affording to get married. Let's Let's just be realistic. And it's okay because, you know, we're speaking in North America. This is a North American context. Mm -hmm. If people can date, they can get married. <laughs> I like that. That's a good point. Well, it, you know, the question is, what do we do for the young men and women who are exposed to sexuality, who have um, an inclination towards intimacy, a natural inclination, which there's nothing wrong with, and... Uh, all of a sudden do not find an avenue to fulfill it if you close the door for them to do so. Yeah, if you close the door on someone, they're going to jump out the window at some point or another, depending on how patient they are. Right. And why do they need to be patient if they can fulfill it in the simplest of form? Ah, uh, I think the simplest of form is where this all hinges. Let's look at it this way. They're, if you close the door for it, they're going to date anyway. So they're going to do the hanam anyway. So we may as well facilitate for them to get married and there's many things they can do to make that happen i think of young men and women who are you know post high school or let's say post 16 17 years right so if they're young muslim men and women as you know i think you live in uh, chicago or you're from chicago i am from chicago yes and chicago has a huge muslim community so let's just leave to the realities of being in chicago new york city you name it, Paris, Amsterdam, or anything, you know, any of those cities. If a young Muslim man or woman has a desire 
for intimacy, they have two options, be married to somebody they like or get involved into Zina. There's some in between there, right? Sure. There's also being patient, but that's really, really hard. And who is, who is able to be patient? So the Prophet Sallallahu what he said was, oh, young man, the one, those among you who are able to be married, then do get married. And those of you who are not able, then fast, because fasting will be a shield for you against, you know, to suppress your desires, right? Mm-hmm. But if people are able to date, I don't see any reason why they're not able to get married. Again, it's a long discussion. But just because people get married doesn't mean that they have to have children, for instance. That's another extremely controversial opinion. <laughs> I'm surprised that it's controversial. What is a controversy? The controversy, uh, again, you know, coming from the context where I'm a Muslim woman on the internet, uh, is that, you know, a person who does not have children is a failure as a woman. They are disappointing to the ummah because they have failed to produce more Muslims who will serve as a sadaqa jariya for them until the day of judgment. They have not fulfilled the purpose that Allah gave them a womb for, etc., etc., etc. It's it's really harsh, I'll be very honest. And it's not that this, um, this critique is coming from Muslim men entirely. A lot of this misogyny is actually perpetuated by Muslim women who are maintaining the status quo. So this line of thinking very, very, very much exists. And I have a sister actually who, who cannot have children medically because it would be dangerous for her. She's had an aneurysm in her brain. May Allah protect her and preserve her and, and always keep her healthy until the day of judgment. She can never have children. She has cats. And yet people always ask her, like, oh, when are you going to have children? She's like, why do you keep asking me this? Like, that's topic number one. There's nothing else going in my life. You know, she's a very accomplished professional, mashallah, mashallah. And yes, I am talking up my sister because I think my sister is the best thing since sliced bread. My sister is an amazing Muslim woman, mashallah. She's married. She's happy. But it's like, oh, when are you have kids? Like there's nothing else going for her. She has no other purpose in her life. And this is true of a lot of other Muslim women who, for whatever reason, whether it's biological, whether it's emotional, whether it's financial, whether it's spiritual, you know, they're they're treated as failures if they choose not to have children. And if there are men who don't like or don't want children, they're treated like, oh, what's wrong with you? Why don't you like kids? What What's the whole point of getting married if you're not going to have kids? That's the line. So it certainly is mustahab, commendable to have children. And there's plenty of hadith literature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to encourage uh, Muslims to actually procreate, right? But as you said, there are different reasons why people may may decide they do, not, they do not want children. A medical reason is very obvious. And I think the financial reason is also very obvious. Uh, so people can be in a couple, in a, in a relationship. Um, and again, I'm taking the example of young men and women because this subject is, I think, you know, you have to start from the start. Because I think if we are at a certain place in our communities as to how we perceive uh, intimacy and the woman's need for intimacy and how we perceive the obligation of a man, a husband, to fulfill uh, his wife's carnal desires. If you are, if you are, if you are at a certain place in our communities, I think it's because when we were at the age when these things started becoming an issue, they were never taught properly. You know, sexual education, um, speaking to young men and women of what it means to be in a relationship, and speaking to young men and uh, Muslim men and Muslim women to make them comfortable 
with the fact that, hey, by the time you hit your puberty, to have a desire for the opposite sex is uh, actually completely normal and it's actually a good thing. It's something that is that should be praised. Now let's talk about what that means and what are the avenues for fulfilling those desires. So in that context, imagine a young couple who are, you know, I don't know, 19, 20, okay? I'll, I'll leave the under 18. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, you know, although, you know, although I, I have, I have uh, three children in high school. Not two, two. One of them just graduated. <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, and, uh, and, and I have one daughter who's in university. And sometimes I sit and ask them about what happens in high school and everything. So let's just take the reality of the times. These young men and women, Muslim men and women who are in high school and who have a desire to be in a relationship and see all other non-Muslim young men and women who are actually in relationships. What do we do with them? You threaten to break their legs if you ever see them with a boy. <laughs> is, it abnormal, is it abnormal that these young Muslim girls desire, desire the young Muslim no, boys? No, as a matter of fact, it's commendable. It's a good thing. I agree because I know too many young Muslim women who, and it's it's sad to be speaking from experience, but you know, young Muslim women who were denied access to marriage by their parents, and you know, in order to satisfy the need for the relationship, not only did they reject their parents, they rejected the religion that told them to obey their parents. What What do you mean by they rejected the religion that told them to obey? They left Islam to be with the boyfriend because if Islam says I have to obey my parents and I can't get married unless my father says, okay, and he's not letting me and marry anyone until I'm done with med school, for example, then I don't need this anymore. I, I, I knew the answer. I just wanted to hear you say it on the podcast. And it's, uh, it's, it's devastating. And this is exactly why the ulama say they classify things into wajib, haram, mustahab, and makruh, and jais. When when do you have to do an action that's wajib? Is there a, an urgency on wajib? Absolutely. The wajib means you have no way out. It is an obligation. So it's important and it's urgent. It's urgent. So I mean unless you have a so you know you have a solution to get you out of that urgency. So not only does Islam recognize that lust exists in both genders but having lust and having desire for the opposite sex is commendable because it could lead you to being a fulfilling half of a partnership. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, we touched upon this in the article as well towards the end about this whole thing about how intercourse and a fulfilling physical relationship is actually a door to spirituality. Really? It, it is. I mean, so uh, some, of the, some, of the, some of the pious people, some of the people of Tasawwuf, the Sufis, the, but we're talking about the real Sufis, Sufis who are scholars, one of them being... Uh, who was it who said, yes, uh, the author of uh, Ahmed Asawi, who was uh, commentator on the Tasir of Jalalain, he says that one of the Gnostics, Gnostics, they say Arifin in, uh, in Arabic, the real pious people who are really uh, lost in Allah, Ta'ala, who have nothing but the thoughts of Allah in their mind, who are very, yeah, who are very advanced in their spirituality. He says that intercourse is one of the avenues towards reaching the recognition of Allah. SubhanAllah. So does he mean that in terms of, you know, having intercourse is a way of of being grateful to Allah because it's a big blessing? Or does he mean that 
fulfilling the obligation of righteous intercourse with your spouse is a means of pleasing Allah. Which one was he referring to? <laughs> he actually means even more than that. Oh, okay. What he means, so so the the in the terminology of the fuqaha, um, the orgasm is mentioned as al-ladhatul kubra, the great fulfillment, the greatest fulfillment. And what he means is that experiencing an orgasm is actually one of the avenues towards recognizing Allah Taala. And 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 the dalil is from Quran. You know, if Allah Taala says, "Wajalla bainakum mawaddatan," and Abdullah ibn Abbas says, "Mawadda is intercourse," and the hadith as well. So, the the point being is to attempt to suppress the need and the avenues towards fulfilling intercourse is counterproductive. And what you mentioned earlier is shocking. Some of the listeners do not know that, but the ulama need to be aware of it, and this is something they need to address. All you know, those sisters whom examples you give who had to make a choice between having a boyfriend and whatever other plans their parents had for them in life which led them to, uh, um, to keep them from getting married, uh, they've lost their Islam. What, I mean, what can be more disastrous than that? I don't know, because everything after that is a failure, unfortunately. People are dating around them. People are having relationships around them. The ulama should actually encourage the young men and the young women, not only in Western countries, in other countries as well. The issue is there. The world is on, is, you know, is one big village. There are some differences, but as time goes again and again, the issues are the same. To save them from zina, the sh- young men and women should be encouraged to get married early and to make arrangements that are suitable for their circumstances. And if you're already married, then the advice for Muslims is to recognize that they have the right to fulfillment and they have an obligation to fulfill one another. Yes, I think that is very sensible advice. And of course, the question comes, if you're already married, like some of the testimonials in your situation where you're not, you know, your carnal desires are not being fulfilled in intimacy by your husband, I think what needs to happen is you need to search for other Muslim men who can have that conversation with your husband. And I think the message is Muslim men need to have the courage, whether it is the ulama or the imams or whoever it may be in the community, that if sisters come forward by whatever means, you know, they can even come forward anonymously and they should feel comfortable coming forward anonymously or, you know, or even in an overt fashion. Muslim men need to have the courage to actually discuss this with their peers because so many things are linked to it, yeah. Jazakallahu khairan to Ustad Mukhtar Ba for this enlightening and very surprising conversation. You can email Ustad Mukhtar at mukhtar.ba at gmail.com M-U-K-H-T-A-R dot B-A at gmail.com My name is Zeba Khan and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Muslim Matters Podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts and you can share them in the comments section below this post where you found it on muslimmatters.org. While you're there, you can also choose to become a supporter of Muslim Matters for less than a dollar a day, not only allowing us to produce and provide quality Islamic content from Muslim activists, scholars, and writers, but also allowing you to share in some of the blessings that reach over a million readers per year. Muslim Matters is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to the voices of Muslims in the media. To learn more about us, visit us at muslimmatters.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and tell us what matters to you. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.